You're listening to the Author Stories Podcast. Bringing you the story behind the stories and the storytellers. Margaret Wine, Sherry Brooks, Sheena Kamal, Matthew Quick, JT Ellison, Walt D. Williams, Brad Ford, Corey, Dr. O, Brandon Sanderson, Robin Mom, Ernest Klein, Jim Butcher, Sherwin Harris. Visit hankgarner.com for archives of all the shows. Today's guest is... Well, thanks for joining me again for the Author Stories Podcast, where I bring you the story behind the stories and the storytellers. Today, I am super excited to have Leora Krieger on the show with me. She has an amazing new book, and it's out available everywhere now. It's called Do Not Disclose, a memoir of family secrets lost and found. And I'll, I'll tell you what, if if you love historical stories um, the way I do, the, and and the added aspect that this is a memoir and and this is a personal story um about leora's journey to reconnecting with her family and 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 finding things out you're going to love this book this needs to be on your to be read pile sitting by your favorite reading chair this is something that you won't want to miss um welcome to the show leora well, thank you, Hank, and uh, so happy to be here on Author Stories. I am so happy wonderful. to have you. Uh, Leora, we begin each show with the same question, and that question is, what is your first memory of wanting to be a writer or storyteller? Oh, goodness. Well, it, it is really far back there. <laughs> I I think I started, you know, as soon as I learned to write a little bit. Um, I think I was already seven or eight years old and I started writing little poems and, um, uh, you know, little short poems. And I call them micro autobiographies because, you know, <laughs> how much how much can you write about yourself when you're seven years old? But it was really something very special to me. And um, I don't know where that came from. Um, but I always, I think I've always wanted to be a writer. So, um, you took the natural path that people who, who say that they always wanted to be a writer, um, you went through, uh, juvenile court and became a juvenile court judge. That's what all writers do, of course. (laughs) Um, (laughs) well, you know, I, I love to hear about people's circuitous route that they take and, and what brings them back around to writing. So first off, what, what was it that drew you to the law? Um, I really fell into the law. Um, I never thought I would be a lawyer. Uh, I never in my wildest dreams thought I would be a judge. Um, but I kind of fell into it. I wanted to go into journalism, but I ended up applying to law school and I got in, um, it, it, it was a career. It was something that felt safe for me. So I pursued it, and uh, my mother always told me, Leora, you got to have a profession in your pocket. (laughs) So (laughs) I followed her advice, and, um, you know, there's a lot of reading that you have to do in law school and as a lawyer. And then I also fell into um, the whole world of judging, um, which was my happiest place as a lawyer, um, because... As a lawyer, you really have to advocate for one side only, but as a judge, you can really kind of sit in the middle 
and uh, work out solutions. And that, that was the best part of being a judge. I love that. So at, at what point did, did writing, um, you know, you, you've, you've published a couple of fiction books, uh, before you, you published the memoir. Um, so what was it about storytelling that came back around to you? Well, I always wanted to come back to writing. Um, but you know, life interferes and, um, got married, had two children, was working full time. And, um, I always, you know, longed to go back to writing, but I'd never written anything more than five pages in my life. And, um, it was at the time that I found out about my, my family secret that, um, actually released me to go back to my roots. And, um, it took me a while to, to sort of sort out how I felt about things. But um, I finally decided that even if I can only carve out an hour a day that I would go back to writing. And uh, I remember this distinctly. We had, we had this little tiny ranch house with not, not much room. And I carved myself out like this little desk between the washing machine and the wall. And and that's where I started writing because it became very important to me to to return to my to my roots. So let me ask you this, Leora, when when that desire became so overwhelming that that you have to, you know, notch out a a place to work, um, was the was the desire for you to you know there's just there's stories that you need to uncover and tell or was there a particular story that was nagging at you was there a character or uh you know maybe a a a plot that that you were thinking about that you needed to see where this was going to take you um i think there there was this one story in my head, which has been rumbling about in my head for many years, but I, I couldn't tackle that first. And so I, I, I started writing this book called First the Raven, um, which really had nothing to do with me specifically, but I, I liked the story. It had been, it, it sort of came out of my juvenile court experience with parents who, um, who were having issues with their children. And um, I just made up a story uh, about one such family, an immigrant family that came to Los Angeles and they were having issues with their, with their one daughter and how, how their issues really, the, the parents' issues impacted on the daughter. So that's, that's, I sort of, you know, when you talk about circuitous, Hank, I sure. think I am the queen of circuitous. <laughs> I've heard some pretty circuitous stories, let me tell you. <laughs> I think we just, you know, we roam around in circles sometimes as writers yeah. until we get to the right place, um, make many left turns <laughs> until we get to what we really, really want to write about. Well, what, you know, one thing that I like to think about, Leora, is that, um, and and this is by no means um, meant to diminish 
anyone's experience, especially anyone's youthful experience. So, um, so listeners out there, please don't take it that way. I'm not, I, I'm not disparaging anyone for their youth. Um, but there, there is something that happens, um, that along the way, as you pick up life experience, as you, as you travel the paths that your life takes you on, you collect stories, you collect um, interactions with people, and um, you know, um, what one of the biggest piece of writing advice that that people give a lot of times is that you know to be a writer you need to read a lot and then you need to write a lot, and I like to add a third kind of leg to that stool and. I think that you need to talk to a lot of people. You need to understand how people communicate with each other. You need to gather people's stories. And and some of that just comes with kind of traveling the circuitous routes. Absolutely. Absolutely. And also being a acute observer. You mm. know, sometimes you just have to sit back and, uh, you know, there, there, there are a lot of um, – writing tips about you need to, you know, write, uh, sit down and write for an hour a day, two hours a day, whatever. Um, I also think that you need to just sit back and think. Yes. Yes. <laughs> and watch, you know, um, sit in a cafe and look, look how people are, are interacting with each other, overhear their conversations. This is part of writing too. It is. Yeah. It is. And and so often, you know, because we're we're so performance um uh minded that if, if we're not tapping the keys on the keyboard, we're not writing. Um well sometimes gathering those and absorbing, you know, human experience, that's writing too. Absolutely. Yeah. And there there's times when you shouldn't be writing at all. You know, right. you need to take a break from it and just sort of absorb whatever you're absorbing and then go back to it. I, I have many periods of time where I, I can't put three words on a page. <laughs> <laughs> yes. I think a lot of people are shaking their head. Like, yes, yes. I, I, I understand that. Well, um, after that first book, um, first the Raven, then you published keep her. Um, what, what was the, the story behind keep her? Or excuse me, when she sleeps, I'm sorry. Uh, when she sleeps um, is sort of connected to this memoir that I wrote, which is the true story of when she sleeps <laughs> a little bit. Um, it, I love um, a connection like that. <laughs> I, you know, when I found out that 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 my childhood best friend um, turned out to be my sister. Um, I didn't know what to do with this at all. Um, and I needed to write something, um, that connected to the story, but I still couldn't tell the whole true story of my, per, you know, the personal uh, angsty story <laughs> that was happening to me. So I, I actually, um, the, the character of my who is one of the two characters in that in the book when she sleeps um, came to me in a dream and I thought about the concept of dreaming somebody else's dreams and I put that story together of two sisters who didn't know each other one in Vietnam during uh, the Vietnam era and one in Los Angeles and they start to sort of recognize each other in each other's dreams now this is you you'd have to take a leap of faith on sure this. sure 
But, you know, have you ever like woken up in the middle of the night and you thought about somebody and then the next day they call? Or, yes. you know, things that just don't make sense at all, you know, sort of. Mm -hmm. Little drops of serendipity in life. Exactly. And um, so maybe it's not such a far-fetched. <laughs> yeah, I, um, I love the premise. <laughs> and so I wrote about these two sisters that end up finding each other through their dreams and then eventually finding each other physically. Um, so this is my, it was my way of trying to work through this this, this personal story of mine, and I, I never, and I thought, wow, I've put this to bed, you know, um, I don't have to ever write about this again, and um, I was wrong. Yeah. <laughs> yes. I was wrong, as usual, um, and then afterward, I wrote Keep Her, which is really a YA young adult book, um, which I started writing, uh, actually, at Starbucks. And it had a million um, kinds of uh, different phases in this book, a, a million different titles. But I ended up with uh, Keep Her. And um, it also came out of my experiences in juvenile court. Um, because, I don't know, I was a juvenile court judge. But tell you the truth, Hank, sometimes I think that me, I'm just 16 years old somewhere inside. Right. No matter how old I get, there's a part of me that uh, remains that 16-year-old. And I'm always so interested in their stories and coming of age and, you know, you know, finding out about life and experiences. And um, well, it's such an intense age where uh, everything is just is just magnified and like, you know, it's. There are not a lot of other periods of life where everything just seems so intense all the time. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, you're just coming into your own. You're trying to figure out who you are. I mean, romance is like, oh, my God, you know, it's like so intense. Oh, yeah. So um, I wanted to write a YA book. And um, that was Keep Her. Then, then I actually wrote a, a book, a nonfiction book about juvenile court itself where I wrote a guidebook to parents and their kids as to sort of how to deal with what happens if, you know, you get cited to come to court, um, stories from the court, and, um, you know, g giving parents and kids a, a way of approaching court, um, you know, so that they had a little knowledge about how things worked. Well, this may seem very um, disconnected or, or just not connected at all, but did writing that nonfiction book about, you know, navigating juvenile court, did did that help you to then write the, the memoir that we're talking about today, Do Not Disclose, um, you know, kind of getting your your feet into nonfiction and, and you know, uh, that world, did, did that help you to bridge the gap over to, you know, telling your true story? Yeah, I, I think so. I think, you know, every book was like a, a, a another step in that sure. direction. Yep. Um, I finally felt um, strong enough to tell my personal story and to, you know, deal with, you know, to write about the people that I knew, uh, some who have passed away, 
um, you know, it, it was very tricky. Memoirs are so tricky. So, yeah. you know, fiction is so much easier. You can you can imbue a character with with anything you want. But right. with this memoir, I really had to think every page. And, you know, am I writing truth? Am I writing with compassion? Am I telling my story in a way that doesn't hurt anybody? Um, you know, it was, it was, a it, it was hard. It was much harder. I, I, I couldn't make up stuff, which I love to do. Right. Uh, I, I had to stick, I mean, I had to stick to the truth, um, as it happened. So, um, you know, but I'm glad I did it. I'm sure. glad I did it. And, um, you know, uh, I, I don't, I don't know. I think you only write a memoir once. <laughs> You know. <laughs> Hopefully you do. <laughs> yeah. uh, I I did not know that there was a connection between when she sleeps and do not disclose. That that's fascinating to me. That um, uh, you know that that they're both inspired by um similar circumstances. We'll just put it that way. Um, but you know you talk a little bit about um the writing of do not disclose and some of the things that you wrestling with you know am i am i being charitable to people am i being kind uh but am i also being truthful you know is this the the true story uh, and i'm reminded of that quote uh by ann lamott uh from her book bird by bird oh, uh, yeah, where, where she says you you own your stories and if people don't like the way that you portray them they should have been you know nicer to you and and i'm that's a rough paraphrase i know um, right and she's absolutely right. You do own those stories um, and you own everything that happened to you. But I, I think very few people really want to be, um, you know, mean in their writing. They, they they want people to be portrayed in as good a light as possible. Um, and, and, and I know that you wrestled with those things. But what, what was it that um, I'm, I'm fascinated with? I'm fascinated with memoir because usually it is a window into a particular time. In a particular circumstance, usually that we that we tell the story. Where did you start finding the um, the uh, the trajectory for what this story was going to be? What the arc of this particular story? Like, you know, how did you define the window that would make up this book? Oh, that that's a really good question. Um, y- you know, again, talk about circuitous. Um, in 2003, I mean, the, this whole started with writing this book started with a postcard, which I found in a thrift store. Um, now, I guess it's about 18 years ago. Um, I looked at the postcard and it was a kind of a different type of postcard. It was from a soldier, a British soldier um, writing to somebody in Brooklyn about thank you for the cigarettes you sent me. And I just started thinking, oh, my God, this is this is interesting. Well, <laughs> what is happening here? Right. Um, and I also started thinking about, well, you know, could Leora Krieger find this this guy? <laughs> you know, I, I, I sort of um, sent out a challenge to myself. I wonder if this guy's still alive. Uh, could I could I find him is, you know, whatever uh, in my love for nerdy research. Um, <laughs> So I spent a year looking for him. 
Um, you know, the internet wasn't as uh, robust as it is today. And so it took me a year with the phone calls and archivists and graphologists and, and uh, snail mail and you name it. I, I threw it into this research and I, I found the actual person who wrote this postcard and decided that it no longer belonged to me. And I went to um, England to return it to his family because he had passed away uh, years before. And I found out about his story and this family welcomed me with open arms. And it was like an experience. I journaled for, you know, five journal books, you know, full of stuff. And at the end, at the very end of um, the, the last time I saw the brother of this soldier, he said to me, oh, well, did you ever research your own family? And I looked at him and I said, oh, my God, I, I haven't. <laughs> and he said something really interesting. He said, sometimes you have to make a left turn before you go on the right road. And that just hit me on the head like, like a hammer. And um, I started researching my family and started um trying to understand my father's life and his Holocaust roots. And mind you, all during this, this year of research, I never understood, because I'm slow, I think. <laughs> how, how does this postcard story connect to me, Leora? There were no obvious connections. And I finally started to realize that this this kickstarted me to really tell my true story. Um, that it's it was so much easier to poke into a stranger's life and understand his life rather than me face the music and write about my own life in in a true way. So, and then it took me another fifteen years. <laughs> <laughs> to really connect and intertwine the stories and, and figure out how they really connected. Um, so there it is. That, that, it was sort of born in 2003, had a long gestation period, and uh, finally was birthed uh, a week ago. Authors, I have a fantastic new service to tell you about. It's called PubSite. PubSite is a service to help you build your very own website, your home on the web, where you can promote your work and give your fans a place to connect with you. PubSite is a website platform that allows every author, regardless of budget, to have a great-looking professional website developed by the book marketing professionals at FSB Associates. PubSite is the new easy-to-use DIY website builder developed specifically for books and authors. Whether you're an author of one book or 20, or a small publisher, PubSite allows you to build, design, and most importantly, update your website pain-free. No need to be dependent on a designer or webmaster to make a small but costly change to your website. Save the money and do it yourself. PubSite is the best platform for authors because it's a book-centric platform. PubSite was built just for authors and small publishers. Every design, feature, and layout is book-centric. They have customized designs for you to use. It's easy to build. No coding or HTML is necessary to create a stunning 
professional-looking website with all the features you want. Get a custom domain name, yourname.com. It's simple to update. You can add all of your books, add a blog and a book tour, sell from any retailer, manage your email list and social media, and even do e-commerce. Build your website with a 14-day free trial, then pay just $19.99 per month, which includes hosting. And we offer packages starting at $499 to set up the website for you. Pub-Site.com, the place to help authors find their home on the web. Looking for a tool to help you visualize your story before the drafting begins? PlotPens is cloud-based and optimized for any device. There's nothing to download. From the new writer who isn't sure how to tell their story to the veteran who can increase their productivity dramatically, we've had experienced writers lay out a detailed structure for several novels in a series in a matter of a few days. The app takes you through four steps of the process, the concept or logline. Make sure you have a solid concept that you can keep coming back to throughout the process. The outline, 12 beats and three acts, each has a description of what should be happening with examples. The board, 40 cards. We take the 12 beats and add sub-beats to those, breaking it down even further and being very specific about what should go into each. These also have examples and descriptions. Write. We take those 40 cards and turn them into a to-do list. For a 50,000-word book, it's about two cards per chapter, roughly. We have a beautiful editor built into the app. You can export your manuscript to a PDF anytime with the click of a button. Let Plot Pins help you visualize your writing project. Use code HANK10 to get 10% off Plot Pins. PlotPins.com. Wow. Um, speaking of your uh, your father's Holocaust story and all of the things that you started uncovering, um, how much of that did your family discuss? Um, you know, I've I've talked to several people that were um, children of Holocaust survivors, and and I get varying um, uh, come stories of how they dealt with it. Some people were very um, upfront and uh, and you know told all the stories. Other people, you know, gladly put that in the past, walked away from it, and you know wished to never talk about it again. Um, where did your family fall in, on that spectrum? Well, I think um, sort of in the middle. Um, I I sort of knew his story and and the fact that um, he was saved by um, what what they call a righteous gentile, um, a professor at the university who put him somewhat like Schindler's List, you know, a list of people to come and work for him, so he wasn't sent to any death camps. But it didn't occur to me that he was what you call a Holocaust survivor. For me, you know, growing up, even though it was sort of in the background and in this kind of vague smoke, for me, Holocaust survivors were only people who had tattoos on their arms, people who had survived Auschwitz or Bergen-Belsen or all the other horrible concentration camps. And for me, I, I didn't I didn't see my father as a Holocaust survivor. 
Um, and I didn't know the exact story. And um, it, it just sort of passed me over in, in a way which, uh, you know, I, I wish now I had asked him more questions. Um, but I think he just, he did want to go on with his life and he wanted to forget all of that. Um, and he was lucky. And I think that also with survival comes PTSD and, um, survival survivors shame. I think so many of his family were killed, although a part of his family did survive. I think there's a shame when you say to yourself, well, I survived, but others didn't. And I think that was part of his persona. And he wasn't very talkative. Um, so it, it was hard to really get an understanding of who he had been until I really went back into the history and understood what was happening at the time that he was, you know, at, in the Holocaust, which is, he was probably about 20 years old at that time. And that's it's a very, um, you know, I mean, you're out of your teens, but you're, you're still a kid right? At, at 20. Right. There's nothing magical that happens at 20 that, that makes <laughs> you, you know, a, a, a robust, mature adult. And, you know, it's absolutely it's, yeah because i remember when i was 20 i was an idiot yeah, it, it, <laughs> that's it, it's so funny um leora what as you started you know gathering your family story and um you know discovering things and and realizing that this was a story that you were going to tell um what was your family's response uh did, did you have conversations with them that you know, hey, I, I would like to tell this story. What what was their response to that? Huh. This is this is not an easy question. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, my parents both passed away. So it was easier. Um I think my mother knew that I was sort of writing this story. At before she passed away, she didn't want anybody to know. She didn't want anybody to know and i respected that part in fact sure. you know we talk about how when she sleeps is um connected to this when i used to do you know book talks about when she sleeps and people would ask me well this this did any of this come out of your history and I, i'd have i i felt really bad that i had to sort of gloss it over and said, no, this is just something I made up in my head and blah, 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 which is not the truth. So I didn't have to deal with um, my parents about this. Um, my, my, my kids and my husband have been very, very supportive. Um, and my brother, I have a, a younger brother and this sister, um, a little bit less supportive. I think they were, you know, sort of worried about it. Um, I didn't include any last names on their side. So um, I, I tried to be very careful. But I think there's always a little bit of fallout in a memoir because, you know, people see things the way they see it or, well, sure. or they saw it. And, um, you know, I, I, I 
I give them leave to do that. Um, this was my truth. I did connect with everybody that was involved, keeping them apprised of the project and sending them advanced reader copies so that they would, you know, not be blindsided by anything. Um, and I really think that I tried to be careful to describe not only the bad, but the good. Absolutely. Well, this is an absolutely fascinating book. Um, I, I love the the window into your family's life that that you have given us. Um, one thing that I would I would love to ask you, Leora, is it, when someone picks up a copy of Do Not Disclose and they they make it through the book and they close that back cover. What do you hope they're left with? I hope that they're left with hope <laughs> because, you know, we can get through a lot of things in life. And, you know, there are worse things that happen to other people than happen to me. I, I just look at this as a journey. And I think you, everybody can find their own way to redemption. For me, this was um, at the end of the book, I, I, I traveled to Niagara Falls, um, which is sort of a gesture to my past, um, I think each one of us can find a way to deal with our past, whether through a left turn or a right turn or, or straight on. Um, you know, we all have, I think every family has a little secret somewhere hidden around. And, um, but I think, you know, we human beings, we're, we're smart, we're tough and we can get through it and there is always a way to get through it find your own way absolutely the new book do not disclose a memoir of family secrets lost and found is available everywhere now um, we're going to put links to it in the show notes of this episode where you can grab it in kindle edition or paperback however you prefer to read you can go grab it today or go visit your local bookstore and uh, if they don't have it on the shelf ask them to order it they'll grab it for you um leora this has been so much fun chatting um if people are just discovering you um where can they find you online if they want to dig into all the great stuff that you do uh well i have a website which i i try to uh update <laughs> as quick as i can um it's www.leorakrieger.net and um, I do a lot of photographs on um, Instagram and I have a Facebook page. So I try to connect and I love hearing from people. Um, I love answering emails and um, I've connected with people all over the world on this. And uh, please connect with me. I love it. I want to hear your stories too. Excellent. We'll put links to your website and your Instagram and and, uh, and your other social media in the show notes as well. Um, Leora, thank you so much for taking time to come on the show. We're going to send everyone to pick up a copy of Do Not Disclose. Thank you so much, Hank. It was a pleasure speaking with you today. And we'll cut it right there. Uh, that was fantastic, Leora. Thank you so much. Thank you. You have the greatest voice. You just made me feel like, really, we were sitting on the couch. I well, love thank it. You. Hey, thank, thank you. you. <laughs> thank you. That that means a lot. Um, when we release this episode uh, next week, I'll send you a link to it and we'll promote it everywhere. Wonderful. You are really Great. doing a wonderful thing for us, us, <laughs> well, us thank little you. authors I, out there. I, 
you know, we it, it takes all of us, you know. So I am um, happy to do it, and and thank you for being so generous with your time. Absolutely, thank yeah. you so much. Have a wonderful weekend. Take you care. too, Leora. Bye bye. Okay. Bye bye. Wargate Books presents Hit and Fade, Forgotten Ruin, Book Two, by Jason Ansbach and Nick Cole, narrated for you by Christopher Ryan Grant. Chapter One. The army of the dead walked straight into our ambush east of Fortress Hawthorne. That's what the fob is called now, Fortress Hawthorne. Despite it being officially known as Forward Operating Base Hawthorne, as was originally intended when the 50 detachments of various special operations groups came forward through time from Area 51, a one-way mission to save Western civilization from a rampaging nano-plague destroying the very fabric of said civilization. Apparently, we overshot the temporal insertion point and stuck the landing. Sorta. About 10,000 years too late. Said civilization is now basically something straight out of Tolkien, or Dungeons and Dragons which we've all now gotten a lot more familiar with thanks to our resident expert and fledgling hedge wizard, the infamous P.F.C. Kennedy. But the Rangers just call it the FOB. The first of our explosives to ruin the leading elements of the Army of the Dead advancing on us, Claymore Mines, the recaptured forge back at Hawthorne, had cranked out in the weeks after we'd retaken it from King Triton, were fired by Ranger Sergeant Kang down there with the scouts and Captain Knifehand's assaulters. It was close to midnight when the front rank of bony warriors, carrying rotting shields and spears, eyes glowing malevolently in the deep night mist, advanced into our ambush, only to get ruined by the daisy-chained Claymore's sudden eruption. Above us, a cloud-shrouded moon cast a wan yellow light over the battlefield. The night was hot, and spring was coming on full now. The pilots who'd gotten us here in the grounded C-17 back at Ranger Alamo, using their meteorology skills, had guessed it was going to be a long, hot summer ahead of us, and an early one at that but there was a cold shiver in the dark on your exposed skin that you couldn't quite explain when you saw the dead advancing rank after rank. The bone warriors carrying spear and shield, other darker creatures barely seen. The lower areas of the earth were graveyard cool and misty, so maybe that was it. Still, the brutal, unrelenting cold of our almost last stand back at Ranger Alamo was gone now. But not the horrors. There wasn't a night that some ranger didn't wake up out of a tormented sleep, breathing heavy, sidearms scanning the dark and looking for orcs and ogres to ventilate. I was sweating in the hour leading up to the attack, despite the night and the mist. Kurtz had us humping hard to get the 240 and all its ammo up to the top of a small hill that overlooked the area where we'd channel the advancing echelons of the Army of the Dead into further fun and games the rangers had planned at a bend in a riverbed. If the approaching Army of the Dead continued on their current course track, 
they'd enter it for a brief period. It was decided by the captain we'd kill them there. And I was sweating. Not because of fear. No, not at all. Firing, whispered Sergeant Kang over the comm as he detonated the mines. And eight daisy-chained claymores spat thousands of steel balls all across the front line of what even I was still finding it hard to believe I was seeing through my night vision device. Skeletons. Warrior skeletons. Ancient warriors like something out of the bronze or iron ages. Worked breastplates of molded plate or rotting scales. Green and tarnished stamped with the markings of fabled armies fallen in battles long, long ago. Leather cuirasses on some, rotting boots, helms with broken horns, missing teeth, tattered leather kilts, beads and charms dangling from bone wrists, enigmatic holy signs and primal torques black with grave dirt or from a funeral pyre long ago on some forgotten battlefield far from here draped about the spine where the throat should be, where it rises to connect to a bone-white skull that seems filled with malevolent purpose and diabolical intelligence, malignantly so. Walking skeletons like something out of a Ray Harryhausen clay model Sinbad epic from the 1960s. Above, the sliver of moon gave enough light to strengthen our NVGs, making the night vision devices perform exceptionally well as we sprang our trap and watched the advancing elements get rocked by our initial high-explosive opening bid in the game we were about to play. The air was still and hot in the moments before the fight began as we lay there in the tall, sharp grass, waiting for it all to go down. I was thinking a hot cup of coffee would be nice about now, except my canteen only had cold coffee I'd brewed during the long, silent, and windy afternoon of preparation. Still, I was happy knowing I had some, rather than none. Authors, if you're looking for a partner to help ensure that your book is the best it can possibly be, look no farther than Pico's House. Crystal and her staff make a conscious effort to be critical, yet courteous. They also strive to make the business side of things run smoothly so that you can rest easy knowing that your manuscript is in capable hands. Whether you need beta reading, developmental editing, a manuscript critique, line editing, copy editing, or proofreading, Pico's House is the one-stop shop for you. Check them out today at picoshouse.com to get started.